Welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, Doug Doohan, and joining me this segment is Maria Novotny, writer and curator and editor of the book, Infertilities, a Curation. Join us as we look at issues that affect us here at home in our community and across the nation. Today, we're going to have a conversation about infertility. Maria, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I think the first question uh, that I really want to ask is, tangentially, I've just heard, you know, people talking broad strokes about infertility. How common is infertility? And secondarily, is this an increasing phenomenon? And if so, why? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, infertility is actually more common than I think we realize, mainly because we simply do not talk about infertility um, that often, right, in public discourse. Um, It can be a really difficult, traumatic emotionally painful um, topic to discuss. So we do know though, however, that infertility is becoming an increasing type of concern that people should just be aware of. Um, So for instance, when we started writing this book, um, which is about two years ago, uh, the common statistic that everyone was citing from fertility providers and professional advocates was the World Health Organization's um, statistic that indicated one in eight individuals um, may experience infertility um, or have that as a diagnosis in their life. Um, And since actually publishing this book um, back in April, the World Health Organization actually updated that statistic to make it more one in six individuals. Um, And that's simply citing that there are increased reasons which vary across people um, who are actually encountering more difficulty um, in becoming pregnant. Some of it is simply because, right, um, people are choosing to put off childbearing until a little bit older, but also there's simply just more research um, and general reproductive health awareness around other conditions such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, which are being diagnosed more often um, and often have correlations that impact um, an infertility diagnosis. So would you say that the rate, based on your opinion, that the rate is increasing or that just research is better at identifying uh, infertility? I think that the research is better at identifying and also quantifying those who are infertile. Um, So for instance, We also know that the one in six diagnosis is probably higher as well because it doesn't um, include, for instance, uh, single single persons who want to actually um, have a family of their own, but um, need some sort of fertility service uh, in order to, um, you know, carry or have a biological child to some degree. So I think in general, the shift in... um, and having a higher number of individuals being diagnosed with infertility is slowly coming to terms with the variety of ways in which one experiences an infertility diagnosis um, and identifies with the disease. So when we talk about infertility, generally, I think our reaction is some something genetic. Uh, but I've also heard a lot of conjecture around possible environmental factors contributing like my- microplastics, pollution, air quality, climate change. Can you speak to that if if that actually is uh, a factor in infertility or is it just more uh, genetic issues? You know, I think um, I'm not a reproductive health 
professional in any capacity. But I do think that we're getting better and more aware at understanding the ways in which right our environment impacts our own reproductive health. Um, and so there's just a lot of pushes, right, in understanding, for instance, the ways in which our um, what we're doing in terms of the types of chemicals that we're putting into our body, the types of um, hormones that we're exposing ourselves to um, are impacting our fertility. So while I don't have actually like exact data or information on um, chemicals or the environment, I do know that we're paying more attention in general and getting better counseling when we go to fertility providers about how to simply like take care of one's body in a better, more holistic type of perspective. Um, and I would say, and I would add also that we're doing a much better job also talking about the need to care for our reproductive bodies through a fertility lens, um, not just for women, but for men as well. Um, just simply knowing, right, that like an infertility diagnosis um, is often like one third a female factor type of diagnosis, one third um, it's related to some sort of male factor, and then one third is sometimes just unexplained. We just don't know exactly um, what that specific cause of infertility is. So it can be, you know, really kind of tricky in terms of understanding, assessing, diagnosing the specific reason of um, infertility. And that can also like simply lead to a lot of confusion and uh, just frustration with trying to treat the disease itself um, and actually get successful with becoming pregnant. Well, let's talk about treatments then, uh, as long as we're on the topic. Now, the most well-known being uh, IVF or in vitro fertilization. Um, can you talk about the options available to people facing an infertility diagnosis and maybe the viability as well as availability? I mean, both from a success rate question to how prohibitive the costs may be. Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of people, um, when they hear infertility, I think just because we've become better right at offering more um more types of reproductive health care that they think you know just go through an ivf cycle which is in vitro fertilization for those who might not know um and that will simply right solve it like you can get pregnant that's a pretty easy solution um and the reality is really just like twofold one is that ivf frequently is not um, an always an affordable option. So depending upon where one lives, um, not every insurance company uh, covers uh, an in vitro fertilization uh, treatment cycle. And that can be really costly. It can be honestly up to like $20,000 with medications, um, which not everyone can afford. Um, but also what I think really exasperates the cost is the reality that Often, often, and um, the first round of IVF simply will not work. It won't take. Um, it can take, I think, we say up in the book, um, we said it's a cystic, like sometimes nearly five times in order for an IVF to actually take and be successful with a take-at-home baby. So if you think about that, if it's going to take possibly five times, and if you don't have any sort of insurance coverage, right, if you're paying $20,000 out of pocket for each round, that's quite a lot of money. Um, it's basically, it could be, you know, a small mortgage um, for a house, right? So, so these are simply, I think, just lots of barriers that when people say, well, can't you just go to the fertility clinic, right, and, and get care? It's simply not that easy. One of the reasons I think that I'm I'm really glad that we're having this conversation is I feel like because we don't talk about this a lot, when people are faced with a diagnosis, they feel extremely isolated. And you start to question about yourself, probably. 
Now, in the book, you have a passage of your own having gone through this. Can you speak to the psychological impact of someone who's experienced this firsthand? And and what would you want people to know about your experience? Yeah. Um, so I have a piece in there. Um, it's called The House. Um, and it was a piece that I wrote, honestly, way before the book, way before even thinking about doing any sort of project like this. Um, I really just wrote it because I needed... I felt like I needed to capture that time in my life um, and a lot of the emotions that I was feeling. Um, so the house is really about this house that my husband and I bought um, with the idea, right, that most people do, that you're going to, you know, have a child or two um, in that in that first house. Um, my husband and I, you know, we were, you know, actually high school sweethearts. We both came from large families. So I'm the oldest of six. My husband is the oldest of four. Um, and the running joke, honestly, in our families was that we were going to actually, you know, get pregnant, like before we were married. Um, and so when we got our infertility diagnosis at the age of 24, it was honestly, we did not believe it. I'll be fully honest with you. We, we thought like, oh, they're just, this is wrong. Like, we'll prove them right. Um, and year after year, it got more and more difficult to finally come to that acceptance that, you know, in order for us to have a family, if we really wanted to have one, that we would need to do either some sort of fertility treatment or um, we actually ended up doing a domestic adoption. Um, and then that's how we formed our family. Um, but the house is really, again, just a reflection of that time when we were young, innocent, had lots of hopes for our future, um, you know, and really wanted to fill that house with a lot of specific memories and myself slowly coming to terms with the fact that, you know, the room that was going to be the baby's room wasn't going to be the baby's room. It was going to be some other type of room. Um, and that can be a process that I think takes a lot of time for people to work through, especially because, you know, often infertility is a experience that impacts relationships, right? So you're working through, you know, processing your own identity, your own acceptance of being infertile, especially, I think, you know, being infertile as a female or being infertile as a male, they have different impacts on people. Um, but then also like being infertile, what that means in your own relationship um, as a couple, for instance, that planned on, you know, raising children and having, um, becoming a family, uh, that causes a lot of stress that I think a lot of people also don't understand because, you know, there's not a lot of people you can talk to open up about what it means, not just for me individually, but also for us, right. As a couple. Yeah. And the, I think including people in the conversation is incredible, incredibly important. And you have even mentioned uh, that factors such as sexual orientation, single people, and people who have yet to even try to conceive, should be included in this conversation. Why do you feel that way? Yeah, because we simply know that, again, the ways in which often infertility gets, um, the data gets collected and categorized is often those who, right, who can actually even uh, first set foot right into a fertility type of clinic. Um, and we know, like I said earlier, right, that simply the cost of um, and the inability, right, to have like equitable insurance coverage uh, already defines essentially who can walk into that type of clinic. Um, so we know, for instance, I live in a state, I live in Wisconsin, actually. Um, our neighboring state, Illinois, has an insurance mandate. So that means that um, in Illinois, there's a mandate where if you have insurance, you can have um, a certain 
a number of rounds of IVF covered, for instance. In Wisconsin, we don't. Um, and so I often work with providers who treat individuals right in Wisconsin and Illinois because they're so close. And they really have really such powerful anecdotes about the disparity in terms of the people they're able to treat in Illinois versus in Wisconsin. Um, and largely, right, it's due based on economic income, but also racial disparities as well. Um, so their patient population right in Illinois is much more diverse than it is in Wisconsin. Um, and so I say all that because simply, right, the idea that um, infertility, right, may only impact like the the typical white heteronormative right woman is simply just a false narrative and this book is really trying to push against that and really represent the wide range of individuals that are impacted um, by really the need to access fertility care and alternative family building services and so that includes persons of color obviously but then also right um, same-sex LGBTQ plus individuals, again, who may need donor sperm, may need donor egg, um, may need donor embryo, right? Um, in order to build their family and really understanding, again, the various barriers that exist um, in reproductive health care in order to simply achieve a family building dream. Yeah. And I'd have to assume that in addition to that, the reversal of Roe v. Wade has also affected uh, infertility treatments and and honestly, probably just general awareness. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that did towards infertility awareness and treatments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Roe v. Wade was definitely something that um, had a lot of infertility advocates kind of um, on the seat of, on the edge of our seats, I should say, uh, because we didn't know exactly how um, certain states may take up certain action. So there, we're still watching and waiting to see um, if there's going to be some direct threats. But for instance, across states um, that might lean a little bit more conservative in terms of the legislator, uh, some of them are introducing what we're calling personhood bills. Personhood bills are um, really uh, harmful to those right who need fertility services in order to build their family, largely because personhood is um, right an approach in order to define when life begins um, at, you know, with an embryo, essentially. And so the idea that um, one could freeze or have their embryos, right, uh, uh, available for a later transfer, this, the personhood bills cause a lot of um, legal complications and even accessing one's embryos. So for instance, like I said, again, in, in Wisconsin, when, um, when Roe v. Wade uh, was being reversed, a lot of individuals and patients that I knew were actually considering sending, right, uh, their embryos, which they've had frozen for many years to, again, Illinois, which was a more um, open, um, more pro-Roe, uh, leaning states in order to have access to those. Um, but there's also simple, simple types of um, complications with Roe in terms of also just access to, to miscarriage care, right? Or reproductive loss care, right? Um, because there's certain restrictions, it just makes, um, if you're an infertility patient, you've likely had a miscarriage or experienced multiple miscarriages. And so if you're in a state where um, abortion is now illegal, right? The idea of going through another fertility treatment um, and potentially, right, having 
be a higher risk individual because you've had multiple miscarriages, it might actually put pause right on your decision to go through another fertility treatment simply because you don't want to put your body at risk with having to go through another miscarriage and not being able to access the type of reproductive health care you needs you have, right? Because you're in a more restrictive state. Well, I, you know, in addition to that, I would say, I would think that not only that, but the, the mental health side of things, it's frustrating to when you're, you know, trying to accomplish something and you continuously hit a brick wall. Uh, and I, I would guess that would be also prohibitive to continuing to seek treatment. What would you say um, to people out there who have either faced a diagnosis of infertility or who have been trying to have children and just not succeeding for a while, uh, what would you want them to know? Well, and I, we've tried to put this forward in the book too, that there's different narratives of success. So I think, um, there's a lot of the narratives, right, that get pushed out uh, into the world are largely, right, success narratives of you have your take-home baby or there had been, um, Lots of imagery, which is great, right? Of like your rainbow baby. So after, right, this idea, like after the storm, after all you've endured through your, all of the real hardship of infertility, you finally got the rainbow at the end, right? And it was worth it. Um, and what I think we as the editors of the book um, and as individuals who have simply worked with infertility patients over the last 10 years and have our own experiences we really want to just emphasize that resolution and success looks different for everyone. Um, and so we really tried to emphasize in the book, um, not simply that resolution looks like a take-home baby, because the reality is for some people, it's not. For some people, it's finding a new version of success, or maybe it's not necessarily a biological child, right? But um an adopted child. Maybe it's the idea of using donor sperm and you never thought you would use donor sperm to have a child, but because of a male factor diagnosis, that's the only route to take. Um, so it's really uh, coming to understand infertility, hence our Hence why we're calling the book Infertilities. Infertility as a plural type of experience, right? That there's not a one-size-fits-all diagnosis um, for getting an infertility diagnosis, nor is there a one-size-fits-all resolution. And that for mental health, I think it's so important to understand that we still can control the ways in which we want to accept what is success in our own family building journeys. So that's what we're really trying to put forward with the book. Since we don't really have this conversation publicly that often in social circles, are there places where people can learn more about this? Are there support groups? What should what should people know about resources available to them? Yeah, so uh, we've done a variety of um, different support group leadership uh, throughout the year. So actually the ways in which I met my other co-editor, Elizabeth Walker, was we were both peer-led support group leaders um, in the state of Michigan. So I was um, on the west side of the state and Elizabeth was on the east side of the state. And we ended up going to Resolve, which is the National Infertility Association. Um, back then, they had um, an in-person advocacy day in Washington, D.C., and the two of us ended up going not knowing each other at all, um, but going and spending our day talking to our Michigan representatives about why access to fertility services is so important, how having an insurance mandate would really help um, create more equity amongst uh, citizens of Michigan and just the U.S. in general in terms of getting care. Um, but it was a really great experience where, you know, we were able to 
find out a little bit about, you know, what it meant to be a peer-led support group leader and learn a little bit more about the specific challenges our, our, um, uh, the people in our group were going through. Um, and so it kind of led us to kind of create create this larger organization. So I say all that because I would really recommend to any of your listeners who are out there who are looking for support to go and just Google Resolve, R-E-S-O-L-V-E, which is the National Infertility Association, and look up their peer-led support groups. Um, They are great. They are free, which is even better. Um, And there's a lot that are virtual. So because of COVID, that's been a new kind of feature. Um, A lot of them meet virtually and a lot of them are really specific to um, the unique types of concerns and questions people may have. So there, for instance, there's a lot of like male infertility support groups that are virtual, which is so great because it can be so difficult um, to find, you know, a group of 25 guys in like a small mid-sized city like Milwaukee, where I am to come and talk about their infertility right experiences on a monthly basis. But with Resolve, you can do that, you know, connect with a variety of guys across the US, right? Um, and get some free services. So I would really recommend doing that. You can also go to uh, ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Um, and you can find a variety of professionals, right? Um, if you have insurance or you want to pay for more of a mental health therapist, um, there are a variety right, that specialize in fertility as well. So Resolve and ASRM are great resources that I would direct any of your listeners to. That's wonderful. So can you talk to me a little bit about about the book? Um, because I've read a lot of books um, on on topics of, of social change, you know, uh, different effect, different uh, medical conditions. And when I got this book, I was a little surprised to find that it's not written from like the perspective of a writer and an editor. It is instead a collection of individual stories from people who have been affected. Why, where did that decision come from and, and why did you think it was so important to share individual stories as opposed to broad sweeping, you know, like medical jargon? Yeah, no, I, I love this question. I think it's so great that you're asking it Um, because you're right. The book, when you pick it up, it's different. There's really not a lot of other things out there like it. Um, and it's kind of intentional in that way because, again, of what we were saying, like infertility does not discriminate. Infertility is experienced because of a variety of different things, right? It might be because you had a cancer diagnosis, right? Um, and then needed to pursue, right, some sort of fertility service in order to have a child again, right? It might be because of an environmental factor, like you were talking about. It might be because um, you're a single person and want to, right? become a parent or you're an LGBTQ plus identifying member, right? And want uh, to use a donor embryo, right? To create your family. All of these are different reasons, right? Of how one comes to experience um, an infertility diagnosis and how one may find themselves suddenly in a fertility clinic. Um, And so we really wanted to, again, emphasize that plurality uh, by featuring a variety of different stories and a variety of different art and media um to present that work uh it's so essential i think especially because there are a lot of great you know monographs that exist out in the world um about infertility um and about one's own journey through infertility and how they found you know their own version of success but with this book what we're really trying to do is if you're suddenly finding yourself right experiencing infertility to pick up this book and feel less alone right um or to you know if you're 
suddenly found yourself sharing with your friends or your family members that you you've been diagnosed and you're trying to figure out, you know, if you're going to do your second round of IVF, for instance, and they're having a hard time really understanding the emotional, psychological, even financial, right, stresses that you're undergoing to share with them the book, right, so that they can get a sense of the variety of ways in which there are so many different challenges and barriers, but also so many different ways of success, right? So that they can help relate um, and, you know, hopefully have a better, more emotionally informed conversation um, with them about what it is that they're experiencing. So it's really meant to be, um, again, a resource book, but also a way to represent the diversity that is infertility. Yeah. And inclusion with the multiple different ways that a person can be facing this. Uh, Maria Novotny, uh, I really appreciate your time. And the book is called Infertility's A Curation, if you would wish to go find it. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation, this important conversation. Thank you so much for highlighting it. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for listening. Conversations is a public affairs program of this station.